or if you've got a Bible, open it to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. Didn't get to do my elaborate setup this morning. Peggy Walters, there's a guy down here singing bass. So I think you can, I think you can kick it up the, up the other nine octaves you do now. So we're, this will be great. We'll have all the parts here at High Point. Yeah, Nehemiah chapter 11. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in their towns, in other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. If uh, you might remember um, earlier, but the first four verses of chapter 7 said that even though the, um, the Israelites and Nehemiah and all these folks had rebuilt the wall, nobody actually lived in Jerusalem. It's a city of rubble. It had been that way for a long time, almost 100 years. I think more than 100 years at this point. One of the things that's at the heart of Christian faith and everything God has ever done in revealing himself to folks is sacrifice. It's important to recognize this, because if you lose sight of this for a minute, you—nothing in Christian faith makes sense, and everything seems weird, okay? So here are a couple of the steps of logic. The first is, there are some things in the world that are nobody in particular's job to do, but somebody had better do them. Think of doing the dishes at your house, for a trivial example, right? Nobody's really dying to do that. Nobody's like, you know, my vocacio is to do dishes. I mean, like, I had a, I had a roommate in, in college. We were charismatics at the time. He just did the dishes whenever he felt led. Which, I don't, I don't encourage that system, frankly. Um, second is that um, sacrifice is interchangeable by defi- definition. If you do something for me, it could have been me. Now you might say, no, wait a second, Nick, that's not totally true. Like, Jesus died for your sins. You couldn't die for your own sins. No, but I could have paid for them. That could have been me. When he sacrificed for me, he paid for my sins. Does that make sense? That um, when somebody sacrifices, that sacrifice is by definition interchangeable. You are substituted for by another, right? It could have been you, but it's not you, right? The third thing is, is that a sacrifice gets a worse deal. A sacrifice gets a worse deal. There are numerous sacrifices that if you embrace them and you do them and you feel called to them or you think that they're your duty, you do them for whatever reason, you get a worse deal from a materialist perspective. From like just a natural, like, what do you want to do? What does peace and prosperity look like for your life? If you choose certain sacrifices, you get a worse deal. And we shouldn't be sentimental about the fact that that's not true. And there's lots of examples of this. For example, having children. Okay? If you have children, it's kind of like a death. Like, you lose certain things. Like, you, your life, in many ways, is worse than it would have been. Now, you might be like, Nick, that's not nice. The p- people love children. I love children. I love having children. Children are wonderful. Okay, that's your emotionalistic sentimentality talking in relationship to the human race. Because if you look at the human race on planet Earth, in places where they have other things to do, wealth-wise speaking, and they can control their fertility with either birth control or birth control and abortion, the human race is going extinct. Birth rates are 1.3 or 1.2 or less, and replacement is about 2.3. The fact is, when human beings really do have a choice, they choose not to have kids. You know why? Because it's a sacrifice. That's why. It's not rocket science. Correctional officers. 
You take a, take a hundred of them at random, you put them in front of a psychologist, 33 of them have PTSD. 31% will be suffering from significant depression. The average police officer, 75% divorce rate. High disability rate. High PTSD rate. Maybe the highest suicide rate of any group of people in the country is present next police officers. There are some jobs that if you do them, there are certain callings, there are certain vocations, certain sacrifices that when you make, you get a worse deal. Okay, you just do. And it could have been you, but it's that other person instead. Right? And though people who sacrifice for us deserve our thanks and our respect, that is not compensation for what they pay. When you give Jesus worship, you're not compensating him for dying for you. When you respect somebody who's in authority, who has a job where they sacrifice to take care of something for you, you're not paying them back by treating them like a human being or by respecting them for what they're doing. No, they don't get compensated. That's the nature of sacrifice. There is no compensation in this world from a materialist perspective for those who sacrifice. And therefore, sacrifice is a holy and a romantic thing. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize then as Christians, as we look at this moment of sacrifice for the people of Nehemiah, and as we look through Christ's sacrifice to ourselves in this moment, is to recognize that under the curse, nothing flourishes without sacrifice. In terms of our look at the humanities, or, or things related to human beings. Under the curse, nothing flourishes without sacrifice. Now, God did not create a world—I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to walk back and forth when we're doing this. Okay. God did not create a world in which— Nothing flourishes without sacrifice. In creation, in the first two chapters of Genesis, the world flourishes on its own in the creative power and energy of creation itself. God is unilaterally generous, okay? But when sin enters the world, sin is by nature a devourer of what is good. Sin is not another good thing. It's not, it's not a pursuit outside of the legalistic righteousness of God. That is like people that are pursuing the desire to live and have fun outside of like religious scrutiny. That's not what sin is. Sin is the devouring of what is good. It is the destruction of creation. And ever since the curse, we have lived in a world with devourers in it, whether they are devils or whether they are us, right? It's mainly us. And the only way to undo the destruction of the devourers that rage under the curse is that someone has to fight them. Someone has to fight them. Someone has to fight what they've done. Something has to undo the destruction. Somebody has to rebuild the rubble, right? And that's exactly what's happening in this passage is that Jerusalem is a rubble heap. It's completely destroyed. It was burned to the ground. Everything was destroyed because of the rebellion. And Nehemiah's original goal in Nehemiah 1 and 2 was not to come back and rebuild the wall. His goal was to come back and rebuild the city. We're three quarters of the way through the book. They've rebuilt the wall. They've read the Bible. They've repented and worshiped. They've had a festival. They've written down a written covenant. They've said out loud that they're all going to obey the Lord. They haven't rebuilt the city yet. Somebody's got to rebuild the city. Somebody has to not go back to their farm where they have peace and quiet and animals and crops and things that produce wealth. A wholesome existence. Somebody's got to give that up 
and they've got to live in the city, and they've got to rebuild it from the ground up. They've got to pick a pile of rubble and build a multi-generational home out of that. They have to rebuild a city from scratch. Who's going to do that? Who wants to do that? Nobody. And so at the very end of this big revival moment, they're like, okay, this is the moment. Like, we got to decide who's going to actually rebuild the city. And there's apparently not an abundance of immediate volunteers. And so they line up 10 guys and they roll dice. And whoever gets selected, that person chooses willingly to do it. They're like, okay, listen, if Providence selected me, I will do it. And that's how they populate the city. People get elected, chosen, called, and then they do it. And they get a worse life than the people that don't. But it matters. They did something that had to be done for someone else and for something else, right? So I want to look at, um, I want to look at five ways this functions, but I want you to see that like this is literally in our church's core values. Our, number, our fourth core value is sacrifice or sacrificial service. That as we're becoming a, a community of sacrificial generosity, we, we, we recognize that, that a result of gospel motivation and the price of influence is sacrificial service. Therefore, sacrifice is necessary in order to make the gospel believable to many who are skeptical and to accomplish the work of ministries that save lives and save souls. Christ sacrificed his own life to save. Sacrifice is the currency of love. That is a fundamental Christian, New Testament, Jesus-oriented, gospel-centered principle that is literally one of the five principles we wrote down as fundamental to what it means to live out Christian faith in the world in which we live. Does that make sense? All right, I want to look at five things from this passage relatively quickly. The first is, somebody has to choose sacrifice. Somebody has to choose sacrifice. Right, verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. Somebody's got to do it. Some proportion— has to sacrifice something about their life, if not their whole life, for the good of other people. In the human race, for any good that flourishes under the curse, some subset of people have to make some level of sacrifice for that to happen. And they don't get compensated for it in this life. Right? Now, one of the ways that that's important is that you and I have to recognize that um, there are ways that we should be responding to that. So, for example, the second thing to think about is that being thankful and respectful, that we should be thankful and respectful to the sacrifices of all as we see them. So in verse 2 it says, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Right? I imagine they should be thankful to their wives and children as well, but you get the point. That the people who didn't go recognize that the people who did go should be blessed and commended and thanked and respected for what they did. Now, this is a fundamental principle of Christian faith. If you, if you look through the scriptures, you'll see this over and over and over again, that there are lots of groups of people who it's assumed they have sacrificed for you, and therefore you should accord them respect and thanks. For example, in the book of Leviticus, it says, when somebody with gray hair enters the room, you should stand. Right? Why is that? Because you're supposed to actually assume nobility on other people. You're supposed to assume it, right? So, for example, think, think about whether or not you think our esteemed president is noble, right? Now, think about whether or not you think the people in the press that write about him are noble, 
right? There's a lot of people who would say no to one or both of those things, right? But I, I guarantee you that if you took your average staff writer at CNN or MSNBC and you're like, you're not a noble person because how you're behaving, they'd be really hurt. <laughs> they'd be like, how could you talk like that about me? Like, what do you mean? Right? Here's why. Because we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we act like honorable people. But we find it easy to believe that other people are not acting the best they can in the situation in which they found themselves, especially if they're in positions of authority. And make no mistake, in many positions of authority, sacrifices are being made. Right? And so one of the things we have to recognize is that we should recognize that people all around us are making sacrifices for us. What we tend to think, especially at this moment of division culturally, is that everybody is trying to pull something over on us. That's what we tend to think. And so we're unthankful and disrespectful towards everybody. But in fact, even the people that you're angry about are like doing work on your behalf. Like I've been really frustrated for months at the Dane County folks that are like deciding when we're supposed to wear masks and how much of this we can do and when we can go there and how many people, whatever. I just, they've been annoying the heck out of me, right? I don't like the way they talk about science. I think it's really partisan. I think the decisions that they made have not been—they have not been tracking with how things have changed scientifically and medically. I just—I'm frustrated with them, right? But listen, I still 100% concede that they're serving me. Somebody's got to do that job. Somebody has to make those decisions. Somebody has to track all those numbers. Somebody has to figure out how many people are in ICU. Somebody has to tabulate all that stuff together. Somebody's got to figure out what we're going to do. Somebody has to do that. And even when people do it in ways I would not do it, and I don't like how they're doing it, they're still doing it. And it's a pretty thankless job. Pretty, like being a school principal. Or I remember I was at a meeting about when they were calling a new district superintendent, and I was in this—it like, was like a focus group and it was for ministers. And there were ministers that were like, well, we need somebody who's really good on this, and really good on this, and really good on this. And then we had other—and it just went around. I, I said, listen, here's my only input. We need somebody who's a martyr. That's what we need. Because whoever comes here, everybody's going to hate. And they're going to treat them like they're garbage, and nothing's going to be good enough, and everybody's going to be angry at them, and it's a completely no-win situation. There's no way to win as the superintendent of Madison Public Schools. There's no way to win that game. It's like, it just, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book where you die on page 85 every time, okay? Like, and so whoever you pick has got to be a person who accepts that, right? And of course, everybody laughed, and the consultants were like, like they were chuckling because they were like, yeah. <laughs> But nobody will say that. But it's true. And so a Christian who understands the gospel, understands how everything under the curse that goes well, goes well because somebody sacrificed, either momentarily in a particular season, like we think about healthcare workers right now, that are under particular strain and particular risk. We're like, oh, these guys are heroes. Well, you know, they were taking care of sick people for a while before this happened, right? And, but like, that's a momentary thing where we're like, oh, that's really cool. But there are all kinds of people that serve us all the time, like your parents, or police officers, or correctional workers, or the military that we never interact with in places like this, if you're not close to a military base. There's all, there's all kinds of folks who are doing things for which they're not really compensated, and they could have done something else. Sometimes we think of like, I don't know, police officers, or maybe some things we're like, well, you know, you know, those people probably couldn't have done something else. Well, no, they could have. Right? I mean, m maybe there's some people doing some low-level skill jobs that are serving you, like stocking shelves, and you're like, look, person does that job because they're not, they're not doing another job. They haven't invested in their human capital. They didn't, they didn't do well in school. Maybe there's some jobs like that. But most jobs in which people make real sacrifices for us require intelligence and capacity and skill and experience. 
And they definitely could do something else. They just choose out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of calling, out of a sense of something else to do it. Just like a parent chooses to have a child. And therefore, the default for Christians should be thankfulness and respect, especially when our knee-jerk reaction is not to. Whether that's your parents, whether that's the police, whether that's the politically elected person ruling over you in your city, state, or nation. And ultimately, it relates to God in its entirety. Because listen, you may be like, well, I wouldn't feel that way about God. Yes, you do feel that way about God. You, are, you do not particularly appreciate how he's governing the universe. You don't. Like, there's things you're frustrated about. You wish were totally different, right? And yet, he's, he's doing it right. Like, in this case, he's literally doing it right. And our job is to be thankful and respectful, and it's really hard for us. And yet, if we can order ourselves, knowing that God is right to do it towards God, we can, to a lesser degree, begin to do it to other people. Right? We need to move on. These are relative to this in the church, those passages you can look at later if you want. Um, because um, there's a number of passages in the Bible that specifically say this about your pastors, your elders, your overseers in the church, and deacons in the church. People who do these jobs of service to serve others with a certain amount of authority, they don't have to do it. They could have done something else. And they have chosen to do this, and in many ways, it is worse. It is a worse life. From a materialist perspective, I'm going to get to another perspective in just a minute, right? The third thing is that you're probably called to some kind of sacrifice. Right? It's not like other people are going to do it all. So if you read through the whole chapter of Nehemiah 11, what you find is that it says all kinds of different sorts of people are necessary to rebuild the city. From heads of families to warriors, what's called valiant men, who are ready to fight and defend the city if it's attacked before reinforcements can come. Stewards or people who are in charge of building up the temple or different households. Musicians and singers and gatekeepers, people to open and close the gates to let the right people in and keep the bad people out. The king's agents were essentially troubleshooters of problems in the city. All these different kinds of people are necessary. They all make different sacrifices. And within this ecosystem of different sacrifices, flourishing can be created. That's true in the church. There's all kinds of different ways that we're called to sacrificially serve the body of Christ. In both its shepherding work of building people up with their faith, and in its witnessing work of reaching others for the gospel. Does that make sense? And that's to be done here. And we all have very different gifts— Scripture says, and therefore we are, we are called in that sense to make different sacrifices in order to create flourishing within the local church. That's also true in the city. We all have different capacities for vocation. We all have different amounts of free time. We have, all have different ways that we can volunteer or keep our affairs in order or have a rich network of friends that support each other so that nobody else needs to take care of them. There's lots of ways in which we do things that equip and help and strengthen and make a contribution sacrificially in ways we're not compensated for, for the flourishing of others. And as a believer, you're called to something. It might not be as much as somebody else. It may not be martyrdom, but it's something. And every something that is real sacrifice for which you're not compensated is a kind of death. And you have to embrace it. Right? There's a, there's a, a, a range of sacrifices that come before all human beings. One, for example, is um, the sacrifice that is relational. So if you get married and have children, that's a relational sacrifice, Right? If you have what I would call an uncompensated covenantal friendship. Here's what I mean by that. There are some people who are, would be really helped by your friendship who you would not consider it a relationship of equality. 
that being friends with them doesn't really compensate you like you're compensating them, right? Sometimes um, uh, churches will call this extra grace required people. You know? Listen, there are folks that like, they need higher capacity friends than they are. They need less broken friends than they are. They, they need, they need something they cannot return in kind. Right? They can often do something, and sometimes they know what the relationship is like for the other people, but they still need it. And if you have a uncompensated covenantal friendship, you're going to be there for that person. It's a real friendship, but it's uncompensating in the sense of like, it's not mutual in the the way that you would naturally delight and enjoy in a relationship, at least where your attitude is right now. That's a kind of relational sacrifice, and it's one that needs to be made, right? Second is vocational. That is, there are lots of choices we can make about what to do with our lives that are fundamentally sacrificial, and you might be called to one of them, and that's okay. And you are going to have a worse life than other people in, from a materialist perspective in terms of peace and prosperity. You make choices. We all make choices. And listen, when you make that choice to be a pastor or a missionary or a police officer or a public servant or a teacher or stay-at-home mom or dad or whatever, join the military, when you make a kind of choice like that, you don't get to hate other people for not understanding it all the time. You have to be at peace with it. You made a sacrifice. It was good. It is good. It's fine. You aren't getting what everybody else is getting. You don't have the leisure that they have. You're not being compensated the way they are. They are getting peace that you don't have. They are attaining the prosperity that you're making possible, and they don't recognize that. That's all true. It's fine. Because you're not a materialist at the end of the day if you're a believer. Right? And then the third is demonstrated godliness. There is a kind of sacrifice inherent to living in a society of people and being entirely Christ's. The Bible says everywhere that that will not be appreciated among people who do not believe at one time or another in varying amounts of intensity. So next week, Manohar is going to preach on the persecuted church throughout the world. This has not been a good year to be a Christian on planet Earth. The murders, the rapes, the burning of homes, the destruction— the beheadings. It's not been a good year, right? But anybody who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 14 says, will be persecuted. People are not going to like you for doing what's right, for saying what's true, for choosing what's good. At some point, listen, it it doesn't mean that people like hate you holistically, but like there are people who are just—you're going you're to hold some view because you're a Christian, and everything else in your life might totally fit theirs. But that one is a, is a signal to them that you must be a terrible person, and they should hate and resist you. There's a few I won't go into right now that exist in a city like Madison. There's different ones that exist in a place that's conservative, like Orange County or Panama City, Florida, or different places in the country, north or south, east or west. There's always going to be a set of cultural beliefs that are going to be opposed to the gospel, and if you— go with the gospel, it's going to affect you. And listen, that is a sacrifice. It's not just being a Christian. It's a sacrifice. You are paying a cost you will not be compensated for, and from a materialist perspective, you get a worse life in a way for it. And some of you, I mean, I've talked to people in this church who have been, who have been gossiped about, um, about their religious faith. They've, They've said things they didn't do, 
but it seemed believable because of the anti-Christian prejudice that existed within their workplace. And so they didn't get a promotion, or they didn't get moved to this other thing, or they didn't get the shifts that they were hoping to, so they could be on a regular schedule or whatever. It happens very commonly. And it's, listen, it doesn't do any good to be angry about it. When you choose to follow the Christ who was crucified and hated by all men, you choose to follow in his footsteps. <clears throat> and when you do so, you choose to make a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is okay. It's okay. And being a faithful witness is part of that sacrifice. Make no mistake about it, right? The fourth, and this is where we get beyond materialism, is you need to embrace sacrifice as a Christian, right? It said that the people who were picked, the one out of ten that were picked, it said that they lit, went to live in Jerusalem, comma, the holy city. Let me think about this. So here, it's heap rubble. It's nothing but rocks. But when Nehemiah was in Babylon, literally in the throne room of the king himself, drinking the best wine you could imagine and eating whatever meats he wanted to put in his mouth, probably including bacon, right? He wept and was broken, and you could see it on his face, and you could see it in his eyes that he longed to go to that heap of rubble and to forsake everything that he enjoyed in the king's palace because he loved the holy city. In, in the canon of the Bible, this is the first verse that calls Jerusalem the holy city. I've listed the others here for you if you want to look at them later. Jerusalem, the holy city. That pile of rubble. You see, Nehemiah and these one out of ten men and their families, they realized there was more to these stones than just a heap of rubble. They realized that this place was supposed to be the home of the people of God, where God himself dwelled. Dwelt. Right? That where his temple would be, God would specially dwell. This is where the people would gather for all the great festivals of God. This was the jewel of the Levant, the, the land of Israel. It was, it was the home city of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the tribes that had returned from the exile. It was everything. It was everything to them. They saw more than just the materialist reality of the stones. They saw that they were chosen to rebuild the holy city. And it would matter for generations, and that they were rebuilding the place where the bones of their fathers were buried, and they were rebuilding the home that God was making for his people where he would dwell with them. And all of that was mystical compensation and the romantic nature of their hearts, and it overwhelmed the material loss. That's called— I just use all secular terms for that. What that's called is faith. That's what that's called in the Bible. You can see this. One of the things Christians have to embrace then is the dignity of the suffering of sacrifice. That what it means. And you, you, have, to, you have to not just be like, yes, sacrifice. It means—no, no, no. You have to get to the point where you're romantic about it. Where you feel something. Where it does something in your heart where you're like, I want— to walk the road of sacrifice. Right? It's, it's like, it's the feeling that a man has when he chooses to propose to his girlfriend to make her his fiancée so she can become his wife. He knows she has problems. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows when they have children he's going to get ignored. He knows that it's going to be harder than he ever thought it was going to be. But, because of how he feels about her, mystically, because of what she represents to him, because of 
what she means, not just who she is. He is, wants to walk whatever role that is so that he could be near her and with her and be hers and she could be his and all that comes with that. Right? And so what a Christian has to recognize is that one, you are suffering with, for, and like Christ himself. The idea for Christians that you could suffer in the path of Christ, like Jesus, and even for Jesus, is a concept of absolute dignity. Right? In the, in the book of Acts, it says that when the disciples were beaten publicly, when they were supposed to feel completely humiliated and to lost their personal dignity, they went away, it said, rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. That is the name of Jesus, the, the reputation of Jesus. It would, because they recognized this, that by telling people the truth, by being a faithful witness, and then by being persecuted for it, they were doing literally the work of Christ. They were standing in for Christ himself. And that's what every Christian does. You stand in for Christ himself. It says actually in Colossians 1, 24, is he, Paul says, I rejoice in what I suffered for you, and I actually fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for his body, which is the church. Paul says this, I don't care how much I've sacrificed for you. In fact, I will fill this body and its flesh up with suffering in what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? Christ died plenty for sins. What it means is, is that Jesus' whole ministry was affliction. Whenever he told anybody the truth, he got afflicted for it so that he could find those who'd be willing to believe. And so in that sense, Jesus' suffering wasn't enough. He, he paid enough for sins, but he didn't tell everybody in the whole world about the love of God and the covenant we could have and how God offers forgiveness of sins and how he tells us the truth and how he invites us to redemption and how he'll fill us with his spirit and how he's a plan for our eternity and he wants to give us significance and meaning in all kinds of ways and to be hated for telling people the truth so that you would find those who would believe it. That suffering was incomplete in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was unleashed when Jesus poured out his own spirit into those who would become his representatives in all the world. And when we walk by the spirit to do that work, we are suffering with, for, and like Christ. God is counting us worthy to suffer for the name, and he does not leave any sacrifice ultimately unrewarded. So it says in the book of Acts, or Luke 6, 38, he says— when you act with generosity, which is always a form of sacrifice when it's really generous, you'll receive back a portion shaken, packed down, stuffed together more than you thought. He is a disproportionate rewarder, but not in this life. He doesn't take away the dignity of your loss. And you need to remember something about romanticism itself. Romance requires tragedy. There's a, there's a melancholy spirit to the nature of walking in the world under the curse— where tragedy and hope come together in a kind of love where one is willing to bear anything for the good. In a broken world, you have to feel the tragedy of it and the hope of it together. And you have to recognize the truth of the loss in this world and mystically and in faith see the reward that comes in the end and be willing to wait for it. The last thing, and really quickly, is that we need to let our appreciation for sacrifice in general heighten and sharpen our appreciation for the sacrifice of Christ himself. 
Preachers and Christians and mentors will always tell you, love Jesus more. See what he's done for you better. Like, go deeper. And and I think people really struggle with just how to do that. Like, it's like, feel this feeling. And so sometimes it's not—sometimes to see something better, you don't say, let me just look at the thing itself more and more and more and more. Maybe something will happen. Right? It's kind of like—I remember— looking at a painting in the universe, in the Chicago Museum of, of Art and um, being like, I don't see why this is so great. And I was with somebody who knew a lot about art, and they were like, okay, go with me. And we went and looked at like 30 other paintings that preceded it. Do you see this? Do you see that? And then, so then I got the story, and I came with the same picture again. I was like, okay, I definitely see more. I may not think this is the greatest thing ever in the history of the world, but I definitely see more. If you want to increase your felt, romantic, mystical passion for the sacrifice of Jesus, sometimes you don't have to know Jesus more. You have to understand sacrifice a little better. Like when you begin to see the sacrifice your parents have made for you, the people just on the street, what they've done for you, what little things people do for you they didn't have, they didn't have to do. Stuff they didn't have to do. People hundreds of years ago, who spent their lives and abandoned their wives and children, or died of some disease seeking out new lasers, who did something worthwhile that they lost something in this life so that they could pass something on to somebody else. And you begin to make some sacrifices in your own life. And you, you feel how you feel when you make a sacrifice. And you feel the little death of that thing, and you feel the loss of it, and you see somebody else going on without you because you limited yourself by the sacrifice. And you begin to feel what that means and what that's like and how it, how it works and how unfair it feels, and yet how necessary it is. And you feel the tragedy and the hope, and you see that all swirl together, and then you start to think the position Jesus was in. And all of a sudden, you, by understanding sacrifice better, understand Jesus better. I mean, Nehemiah was a very great man. He left a throne room to go to a heap of junk to rebuild it so that humanity could have a home in the presence of God. You see where I'm going with this? But Nehemiah's mission failed, ultimately. And he couldn't bring continual revival. The people didn't live like God lived with them. And they became legalistic. And so that when Jesus showed up on the scene a few hundred years later, he did not find a people ready for him. And 70 years later, the Romans completely destroyed the city again, so it was rubble another time. But, But there is one who left everything and suffered in every way on every level, before every person, to suffer not just the work, but the indignity, everything, so that he could make a home for you out of rubble. Out of the rubble of the curse, he would make an eternal city. And that he would count call both it and those who believe in him together, the bride of Christ. His end goal the one who he romantically and mystically in full providential desire wanted for himself out of love. And he did all in everything. And he promised in John 14 when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He, he said that he was going to build that city. And he's building it right now. So as you— grapple with the Christian concept of sacrifice and the human concept of sacrifice, and if it can build your understanding of what sacrifice really is and what it means and how it functions, I think in the end it could lead to 
us recognizing how important it is that we do it as Christians and that we see the sacrifice of Christ better so that it can move us to be not a materialistic romantic who wants to lick the earth or an emotionalist romantic who just wants to hold somebody and make a connection, but a kind of mystical romantic that sees truth and the one who is truth, but who is immaterial and who lives according to that truth and the one who is that truth in this present world so as to make it better and to sacrifice for the material things and the people who are in it. The right kind of materialist, the right kind of emotionalist, because they are the right kind of ascetic, because they mystically are connected to the truth and the God who is that truth in faith, and namely, and the one who perf- perfectly showed how to sacrifice for that faith, the man Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we take a few minutes to sing and to celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, and as we ask questions about this and so on, I pray that you would apply, 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 and press in and illuminate and affect us by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you. We have devouring hearts that are, were born in the curse, and we need you to help us to see light, to find our gravity in you, and to be moved and changed by your truth. Pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>